My name is Adam, and I am one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. We're in a series titled Courageous. Uh, last night, uh, some of you, probably a number of you, were up, maybe, saw the fireworks at Terry Hill, and I, I just to kind of prime the pump for where we're headed this morning and kind of why we're in this series, I kind of thought about this as we're singing, actually. You know, we're talking about courageous and doing the impossible, and, and we're talking about all summer long about how God shows up throughout the pages of the Bible and does some really cool things through his people. And we're asking, why don't we see it happen today? And what does it take to maybe see it happen today? And let's talk about crazy days. We're looking at one story in the book of um, Joshua, a story all about God doing the impossible to accomplish what God's called his people to do. Was it Terry Hill days last night? Took my uh, children up there for a little bit and wanted to see the fireworks. And we did the annual sit in the graveyard. Uh, That's still a little eerie to me. Sit in the graveyard there to watch the fireworks go off and um, hope the dead don't rise. Uh, But it is what it is. But it was we were walking around there with my, uh, we gave them each uh, $5 and said, you can do what you want to do with it. And uh, Luke, our oldest, comes up to the game where you throw baseballs and hit the bottles that are turned upside down. You break two, you, you get a big stuff Smurf. And he wanted the big stuff Smurf. So he walks up and says, I want to throw the bottles. I want to throw at the bottles. And you know what I thought about my heart as a father really failed uh, is I think about this series Courageous. Because you know the first thing I said to him? Luke, there's no way you're going to be able to do that. There we go. Buddy, you did it too. (laughs) What I was really wanting is to instill in his heart a respect for money and making wise choices with money. I think we could have done that, though, as a dad by saying, Luke, you know what? It could happen. Go up there and give it your all. Just make sure you understand. Make sure you, you look at the odds a little bit and make wise choices with money, but you could go up there and do it. That's the heart of this series, is to erase that stuff from our heart where we look to our children and say, ah, you can't do it. We look at our own hearts and say, ah, you can't do it. But where we begin to make wise choices and walk out and step out in faith and say, you know what, God is on my side. It's the same God that we read about in the Old Testament, the beginning part of the Bible. It's the same God that's alive and active today, and we can do it. Do the impossible with him, with courageous faith. To get us moving this morning, we're in Joshua chapter 7, and... This story has taken a very interesting place in my heart. It played a very key role in the formation of my faith, actually, as I've come to realize over the years. See, I met my wife, and I I started my really early years in ministry and really serving Jesus in the Christian camping ministry. And upstate New York, and I loved it to death. It It was a blast. I mean, we had, I can't even put words to how much fun we had. See, it was, it's met in the upstate um, the Adirondack region of New York, and these kids would come from all over the Northeast region. They'd come from New York City, they'd come from Philly, Boston, and then all the rural areas all around there in the Northeast. And they would come because they were coming because it was, I mean, we had so much fun. Our summer camps, we'd be out on this gorgeous lake water skiing and playing paintball and, and having campfires and shooting ranges and horses. And I mean, we, the kids loved it. They had so much fun. The winter camps, we had this ice chute where we froze over a water slide that went down on to the lake and we had ice skating and we had this a a tubing hill like I've never seen before and kids absolutely loved it but more than kids loving it because of the fun they had and because of the fun we had as, as counselors and staff we also loved it because we we really had an opportunity to care for these kids these kids that would come from some crazy stories crazy backgrounds broken families hurt and then we'd have ones too that came from you know pretty good families but they'd come 
Come to have fun, but come and build a relationship with a counselor, a counselor that loved on them and cared for them, and then had an opportunity to share Jesus with them. And every single end of the camp, it was commonplace to see anywhere between 50 and 100 kids come to know Jesus as their personal Savior. We loved it. And we love hearing the stories as we walked with these kids all week long of radical life change. It became just kind of a commonplace thing. We almost got used to it. But one of the things that the camp did, for those of us that were on staff, is we would occasionally have staff meetings, and sometimes they'd even bring the whole staff around to do a campfire meeting just for us. Those of you who've been in camping ministry know the campfire is like the pinnacle of the week. So they'd do it for the staff. And they'd bring us around, and they'd come to this story that we're at in the book of Joshua. It's a story where there is this guy named Achan. And you have to back up into chapter 6 when, when the walls of Jericho came down. The famous story that most of the, even if you didn't grow up in a church, you've probably heard about Jericho. The walls of Jericho came down and God said to the people, when you head in there, wipe the city out. Take it out completely. Do not keep a thing for yourself. No gold, no silver, no pretty things. Leave it all there and burn it and destroy it. Now, we find out, we fast forward into chapter 7. This guy named Achan. They're getting ready to go up to battle with the city of Ai. And they head up and they send two spies out to kind of put the plan, the battle plan together. They come back and the, and the two spies say, you know what? We have this city. We are the stuff. Look at what God has been doing with us. We can do this. We're so good. Let's leave half of our troops back here. Let's just send a portion of them up to take the city out. Well, they send a portion up and they come back with their tails between their legs. They were destroyed. One passage even says their hearts melted inside of them. They were scared to death. So Joshua, the leader, falls flat on his face and he bawls like a baby. And God pretty much looks at him and says, Joshua, get off the ground. Put your big boy pants on. We've got some things we've got to deal with. What he says to him then is he says, there is someone in this camp who has sinned and it needs dealt with. And then he uses this line. I have it in the title of the message. Destroy what is devoted to destruction. Wipe it out. So this camp, what we would do, find in New York City, they would, up in New York, they would stand and they would, they would preach this to the staff and they would say, there's sin in the camp and you heard it ring through your heart. And they'd, then they'd go on to talk about the reason God isn't blessing more or the reason maybe this, and they lay out something that happened at camp, but it was happened because I believe our staff, there's sin here, and then God cannot work, and he will not work until you're faithful, and until you deal with your sin, and we'd hear this echoing in our heart, there's sin in the camp. And there wasn't a one of us that didn't, at some level, search our hearts, because we did not want to be the one to stand in the way of some young person coming to know Jesus. So I remember the campfire. We'd all, you know, if you're no camping minister, you grab a little stick. You walk down to the fire. You, you name your sin and you throw it in the fire. And you're, man, you're, I'm walking back and I'm turning over every rock and every leaf in my heart and my mind saying, what sin do I have to deal with? What I've come to realize is over the years is that way of thinking. I don't think they meant to establish this. I know the camp well enough. I know some of the leaders there. I don't think they meant to do this, but it really established an unhealthy way of living. What it really instilled in my heart was a very unhealthy view of God and how he works. See, here's the message that I walked away with. Serve God, stay holy, avoid sin so that he will bless you. 
Maybe work in reverse. If I'm not being blessed, if things aren't going well, well, then I've got to back up, and there must be because of sin in my life. I began to realize, is that true? See, doesn't Scripture teach, this is what I wrestle with in my heart, doesn't Scripture teach that in Jesus, I am blessed? Doesn't Scripture teach that I am a sinner, and I cannot on my own move towards pleasing God without him, period? So I'm a sinner, and I'm separated from him. So he has entered my world. I confess, I believe in the name of Jesus, and I am now into relationship with God, and I am, as Scripture teaches, fully justified. I'm made righteous. The book of Ephesians says, I've been given all the blessings in the heavenlies are now poured out in me. And the writers of the Bible even go so far as to say, I am now adopted as a child of God. That's cool. And from that place of being in with God, justified by him, period, understanding the huge chasm that he crossed, I now have a desire to serve. As I probe this thinking of what the camp instilled in me and what I see very honestly in our culture, in our Christian culture in America as I walk with others, I hear people, things go wrong. The first thing I want to do is, man, what's the sin in my life? I realize, I look back and I say, you know what? I was living for his gifts, not the gift of his friendship. See, in that, ministry, in that context, the gift was seeing people come to know Jesus, and it was so deceptive because that's a really good thing. But I wanted people to come to know Jesus more than I myself wanted to be in his presence, more than I wanted him. And I found that this, this way of thinking drilled down into my heart, and it sat there to the point where it impacted my marriage, it impacted, my, it impacted a lot about life. And I'm realizing I came back to over the years and said, you know what, life is about enjoying him. And as a result of enjoying him, I then have his gifts. Now, sin is important to deal with. Turn with me to Joshua 7 because it's important to deal with, and I don't want to minimize it. Joshua chapter 7. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, if you're brand new to Christianity or a friend invited you here, we're glad you're here. We are very passionate about the Bible. We believe it's God's direct words to us about himself and how to relate to him. So I encourage you to pick one up and use it. If you don't have one, please see us and we'll get you one or grab your smartphone and find it there. But Joshua is found five books in, six books in, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, Joshua chapter 7. Now, sin is important to deal with, but dealing with sin for sin's sake is not the heart of Joshua chapter 7. Dealing with sin so that God will bless me is not the heart of Joshua chapter 7. That's what it was taught to me years ago, but it's not the heart. There's something much, much bigger in this chapter, and it comes right out of the gates in verse 1. The heart, and we're going to see right out of the gates, is God's covenant. I had a wedding yesterday. I was a part of a wedding. And, you know, when a husband and a wife stand here and they say to each other, I do, this is what I commit to. They're making a covenant to one another. They're saying we are for each other. We are going to be together. God's covenant is not with a person, but a people. Now, some of you look at that, and in our American westernized way of thinking, we think, well, God's all for me. God died for the sinner. Yes, but the heart of God is for a people, not a person. This is hard for us to get our heads around. Taking a step further, if we're going to represent God to the world, it takes a people to do that. I cannot stand up here on my own and represent God to you without a people alongside of me. 
I cannot go out into this world and represent God in this world without a people alongside of me. And that's the heart of Joshua chapter 7. Look at verse 1. But the, look at the word. Those of you who have an NIV Bible, that's what I'm preaching from. The Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah. And I want to pause there. There There's some really tough names. Someone came up to me the other day and said, um, (laughs) gave me a compliment for the way I pronounce names in the Old Testament. I said, well, you know what it really is when you don't know? Just say them really bold like you know what they are, and people go, wow. So I don't even know if I got those names right. I'll let that little secret out. When you see me rip through names, that's really a lot of times what it is. I don't know, same as you don't know, probably. So so unless you're a Hebrew scholar and you can help me with that. Uh, So these guys, it says, Achan, the son of all these guys, from the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Who sinned? Who committed the actual sin? Achan, right? An individual person committed the sin. But when God looks down at the nation of Israel, who does he hold accountable? You see the very, if you're in IV Bibles, the third word in the verse, the who. Plural, Israelites. One man sinned, but he's holding a whole nation responsible. Look at verse 11. We're going to talk about the in-between verses, but just jump with me to verse 11. Israel, see there it is again, collective whole, we're talking about the nation, has what? Sinned. Now again, one man sinned, but God's looking down and saying there is a people that have sinned. Now look at all of the plural pronouns in the rest of this verse. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their possessions. Crazy, isn't it? One man sins, and God looks down and says, they have sinned. I cannot stress this enough. All throughout the pages of the Bible, God does not look at the individual. He does, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but the real heart of God is he looks at a people. It says it takes a people to represent God. The heart of this starts, in my opinion, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is the foundational statement of faith for a young Jewish boy. When they were growing up, man, this is what they were, had drilled into their hearts and minds. And this is what you heard. It just was actually called the Shema. This was the Jewish statement of faith. Here it is. Hero Israel. The Lord our God. Some of you have heard this before. The Lord is what? One. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We believe that we serve and we worship one God and one God only. Now, some of you may stand up and say, no, wait a minute. Who's Jesus? Who's the Holy Spirit? How does this whole thing work? I mean, my kids will say a lot of times, that they'll reference God, and then they'll talk about Jesus. Isn't God one? This is for a whole other message, but we believe in a Trinitarian God. There is one God, but he's represented in the essence of three. Now, what a lot of us miss when we talk about the Trinity is this. God is huge. God is big. God is grand. And it takes the essence of three to represent his greatness. Why do I think that I can walk out and do it by myself? 
I think it's the real heart of this is God. Right away, you see in Genesis chapter 1 when he says, let us create. He's referring to the creation of the world, and he's speaking to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us, it's a plural, let us create. God works as one, but the essence of three. Again, for a whole other message, I know it's confusing. It's, I don't even have it all figured out. But the heart of this is keep in mind that God is huge, and it takes three essences of, of his being and representation of him to represent him to the world. Why do I think I could do it by myself? More specifically, Genesis chapter 1, foundational verse to our understanding of humanity, our understanding of life. This is before sin enters the world. This is God's declaration of man. So God created man in his own image. Every human being, every one of you, whether you're in a relationship with Jesus or not, you're an atheist or you're a God-fearer, no matter who you are, you are created in the image of God. In the image of God, he created him. Now, this cool little detail. Male and female, he created them. Little Bible quiz. Is God a man or is God a woman? Neither. He's both. You know, there are passages in the scripture where God describes himself as a woman. Talks about the wings of a, like a mother bird. How the mother hen pulls. He's referring to himself as a woman. There are also a lot of places in scripture he refers to himself as a man. God is both essence of male and female. And what he realizes, I'm a big, huge, great, magnificent God. And I can't put all my essence into one person. So I'm going to create man and woman. And they're going to, look what it says then. They're going to come together. They have my image. They represent me. Now, men in the room, your wives, those of you who are married, do some crazy things sometimes, right? Especially one time a month specifically, there's some crazy things that go on. You say, you know why she does it? Because she is a female. Women in the room, you look at your husbands and you scratch your head sometimes and think, what on earth? Is this guy human? It's because he's a man. There's differences between men and women. And and those differences are crucial to understanding God, especially then as they come together as husband and wife. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. As you come together, you fully form the image of God. You then have children and increase my glory, my presence throughout the earth. It's God's plan from day one to have two people represent him. Now, sin enters the picture, and it gets messy. So he moves to the nation of Israel. The family is still crucial. The family is still important. But he moves now to this group of people called Israelites, the Jews. And the thing that's interesting, if you work through their foundational books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it's called the five books of Moses, foundational, foundational to the Jewish faith. You will never find God and me in the pages. Never. God's covenant was with a people, not a person. When he said to Abraham, a solo individual, what what was he going to do with Abraham? I am going to make you into a great nation. He always had in view a people, not a person. He worked through a person, but he had people in mind. Today, it is no different Those of you who have been around the Bible long enough, been around church long enough, know that we as a church collectively, people that know Jesus, are called the body of what? Christ. We're a body. We are represented. The image in the Bible is we are a body. We're a group of people that's functioning together for a collective purpose and whole. The tragedy of Joshua 7 is we're a people. Your sin becomes my loss. Your sin my sin becomes your loss. 
Sin is never individual. This is one of the deceptive lies of sin, the lies of sin. Satan has this little voice in our mind that says, you know what? We begin to think that my world is my world. My thoughts are my thoughts. My viewing of that computer screen is my viewing of that computer screen. My listening and my watching is my listening and my watching. My abuse of drugs and alcohol is my abuse of drugs and alcohol. My anger is my, 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 it's my sin. You have no business to deal. It's my private. And the reality is, when it all comes down to it, sin is never individual. God sees a people. And he says, I want us to link arms and understand that we are a people committed to a mission of representing God to the world. So when Adam sins, it's as though we've all sinned. Take it that personally. When you sin, it's as though we've all sinned. We've got to break down this Americanized thinking that my private world is my private world. Sin impacts. So that's the heart, in a lot of ways, of Joshua 7. It's this collective whole. Now, it goes further than that, though. Before we do that, though, let me mention a couple things. Just that I've, heard, <laughs> I've heard some things said. I've even said some of these. When I first started in the church ministry, this is one of the things that I used to say. I used to say, it's not the church's responsibility to evangelize the world. It's my job. I used to say that. I've heard a lot of other people say that. There's what, what, what I was really saying is on Sunday morning, the goal is for you, everyone, to come and listen to a pastor talk and instruct them and teach them and encourage them so that me as an individual can get out of the pew and go out into the world and lead people to Christ. As I've thought about that over the years, I thought, you know what? That really can't work. I can't represent Jesus of the world without you alongside of me. I can't do it. Some of you hang out, there's a thing called spiritual gifts. One of the spiritual gifts I do not have is gift of mercy. Some of you say, yeah, I know. <laughs> You're not a kidding. <laughs> now, I understand the importance of mercy. I understand the value of it. But when I go out into the world, I am not representing the merciful side of God a lot because it's just not, it's not the supernatural imperative. But I link arms with some of you who have the gift of mercy. Guess what it does for me? It completes my picture of a God, a big God, a great God, a, a God of holiness and righteousness. It completes that because I link arms with you. You challenge me. You speak into me. I learn from you about who God is by watching and interacting with you as we link arms. I can't evangelize the world. I can't see the world come to know Jesus without you alongside of me. And you can unpack that. To me. So I, I hear people say, well, it's not the church's job. I say, no, it is the church's job. Well, collectively, as a whole, we're called to link arms and storm the gates of hell. I've heard other things say, and I've said this. This was a big one for me. <laughs> I used to say when I wasn't going to church, I used to say, you know what? I love Jesus. It's the church I hate. What do I to do with the church? I love Jesus with the church. As I thought about that, you know, it's a westernized, Americanized way of thinking. And it's kind of like me saying, I love my wife, Tanya, but I hate everything about her. Now, some of you listen to that and think, oh, that's really odd. It can't be done, right? You would tell me you're a hypocrite. You don't really love her. But I find that's what some of us do when we say, I love Jesus, but it's a church I hate because the church, the Bible teaches us, is the fullness and essence of him. So when I'm saying, I love Jesus, but hate the church, I'm saying, actually, I love Jesus, but I hate Jesus. And so it really can't happen. And I think it begins to boil down into this reality that we have a hard time seeing us as a collective whole. We're such an individualized group of people. 
Here's another one I used to use a lot. My mom, when I was getting my life turned around and trying to figure Jesus out and I wouldn't go to church, and after I'd say I hate the church, I then said, you know what, Mom? I can worship Jesus at the side of my bed on Sunday morning. Or as I heard in Mifflin County a lot because they were such avid hunters, I can worship Jesus in a deer stand, or I can worship Jesus at the beach, or I can worship Jesus on my boat, or I can worship Jesus and you fill in the blank wherever it is you want. I can worship Jesus on my lawnmower. Now, that is a true statement. I can do those things. I can do those things. But again, it's like saying, (laughs) I love Tanya without spending any time with her. I mean, I can worship Jesus in those moments on the mountaintop and on the beach and on my deer stand and though I don't hunt or wherever it may be, I, they can be moving times for me. But if I can't worship Jesus with you, I can't worship Jesus. God says you're a collective whole. It takes a people to represent God. Learn to get in with people. We are doing this courageous thing together. If we want to be courageous, we want to see the impossible done, I've got to link arms with you. We've got to link arms together. Now, let's talk about the individual sin. My sin keeps others from seeing God in Jesus. That's true. Each individual at some level is responsible for his or her own sin. So the individual at some level has to be dealt with. So what do we do? Look at Joshua chapter 7. Set the foundation. It's a collective whole that God's concerned about. But he deals with the individuals. Look at Joshua chapter 7. Look at verse 7. The battle happens. They come back. They, have, they come back with their tail between their legs. Their hearts melting inside of them. They're scared to death. Joshua then, Joshua, <laughs> Joshua verse, chapter 7, verse 7. And Joshua said, all sovereign Lord. Now he's probably, I'm, I'm not a real drama guy, so I probably... I'm not going to do justice, but he weeps and he bawls. And, oh, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe us off the earth. Oh, Lord. If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Hear what he's saying? I find myself in this passage a lot. When we talk about courageous faith, we've been dealing with courageous faith all summer. Do you know what happens when we get bold and step out? Almost always. Almost always. We dream big. I dreamed of going to Charlotte to plant a church. I dreamed big. There it is. Let's go get the promised land. We step out. Things don't go good at some point because we're human. We live in a fallen world. And sometimes God needs to purify us and help us and and grow us. So we step out into these big dreams. Things go poorly. And for some reason, we run to this. I run to this. Oh, God, if I'd only been content. Listen to what he's saying. If I'd only been content not to dream the impossible. That's what he's really saying to God. If I'd only been content not to listen to you. Isn't it God that said, here's the dream, here's where I want you to go, here's the promised land? He's looking back and says, only if I'd been content, God, not to buy into your dream and your vision. That's what he's really saying. It's the heart of a person who is living courageously, but living in a broken world, and he steps out, and he's hurting, and he's struggling, he's confused. And look at God's response. Verse 10. Not a lot of mercy here. 
The Lord said to Joshua, those of you who have the, the, the NIV Bible, stand up and see the exclamation point after it. In the original language, there is some emphasis put to this. Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? And basically, I, the way I, my language is, Joshua, put your big boy pants on, quit crying like a little girl, and let's go do something about this. I mean, he gets blunt with him. Quit crying. Quit having this self-pity blame. Oh, I should have been content not to listen to God's stuff. Get up. Now, then he gives him this directive, and he says, here's what I want you to do. This whole nation is struggling because one person sinned. You've got to root out that one person. You have to deal with that person. So he gives them a plan. I want you to call the people together. I want you to then break it down into the clans. And I want you to break it down into the tribes and into the families. And I want you to finally get down to the individual. And, and I will help you through this. And then you want to deal with that. So that's what they do. They work through this. Look down to verse 21. What is the sin that so angered God? Look at verse 21. They find Achan. Achan steps up and Achan says, yes, in fact, I have done something wrong. And here's what it comes. Verse 21. When I saw the plunder, referring back to Jericho, when I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing five shekels, I what? What's he do? What's the sin? I coveted them. And I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath it. See what the sin is? Here comes, aside from the heart of chapter 7 being we're a body, we're a group, we're unified. Here comes the real heart. You coveted. What's coveting? Coveting, especially when you look at this passage thinking, I will find life and pleasure in something other than God himself. Achan, what he's saying is God told us to do this. God said, do it this way. But when I got in there, I saw this and I wanted that because I thought that was going to give me pleasure. See, coveting is we think that will fill the empty spot in my heart. That, whether it be family, my wife, a husband, whether it be I want kids, whether it be a house, whether it be a car, whether it be money, whether it be a job, whether it be a mission trip, whether it be a uh, people come to know Jesus, whether it be whatever that, when I look to that, all good stuff in place of him, that's coveting. And it angers the heart of God. And he says, he says, you got to be deal, dealt with. See, Achan's family, as you go on through read here, Achan's family is destroyed. So it's not a necessarily good way to deal with uh, discipline. <laughs> Parents, I wouldn't recommend this to, in a discipline measure for your children, but he is stoned. They take him, his wife, and his kids and kill them all. I mean, this isn't a great, we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks. In, in three weeks, we're actually going to talk about all the blood in this book. I mean, there's blood all over the place. And we're going to deal with that and talk about that honestly. But for now, what happens is they take him out and they kill him. And then they lay him down and pile a bunch of rocks on top of him and say, here's a memorial of stones. Once again, we see these stones all throughout the book. Here's a memorial of stones for you to remember not to go the way of Achan. Now, 
I've always approached this passage in chapter 7, as I mentioned, is get rid of sin so God will bless. You know, I've come to realize a lot of times why I try to get rid of sin is because I want that. See, a lot of times life doesn't go well, and I want life to go well, so I begin to think, well, I've got to come back here then and deal with the sin. That must be why I'm not getting that. So the questions beg to be asked of myself is, well, what am I more concerned with? Am I concerned with his presence or his gifts? See, because what holiness becomes, when I, in, in some strange ways, holiness becomes an arrogant means to go about getting his stuff. In religious communities, I think a lot of times people that champion holiness, unfortunately, when you really sit down with some of them, what they're really champion is be holy so you can have his stuff. Life didn't go well for you because you're not holy, so be holy so you can have his stuff. And what it really boils down to is, well, that holiness isn't really about getting to know God and drawing into his presence and seeing him and, and, and on and on you go. It really boils down to, I am in an arrogantly going about life my way, doing it, doing it the way I want to do it, doing the way I see fit, doing it on my own means, my own way, through my own strength, so that I can have that. My spouse, kids, a car, a cool ministry, a great job, a great experience in life. I want that. I can let him go. And God's anger burns at this. Arrogance. Arrogance. God can't handle it. Dan Allender, in, his, in a book I'm reading, actually right now I pulled this out of a book that I'm reading personally. He comments on Genesis chapter 32, which is where Jacob, the kind of the father of Israel, wrestles with God. And he says this. His anger comes against those who arrogantly and indifferently ignore him. Not against those who deceive and destroy, but nevertheless seek him. I love this, because we're broken, sinful people. Some of you come here this morning with this heart to worship God. You want to draw into his presence, but you know in the back of your mind, man, but look what I did last night. Look what I said to, look what I said to my wife this week. Wow, did I really say that to my kids? Did I really do that? But, but deep down in there's these places in you that say, I, I so badly want to know God. Dan Alder makes this point that God's anger doesn't burn against those. What God's anger burns against are those who are arrogant and want to do it their own way, that are indifferent towards him, ignore him, and basically act kind of cold towards him. Who want to go about getting his stuff, but don't really care about having him. So as I thought about this passage, I thought about this over the years and how the camp used it way back. I really realized when life goes wrong... I had this propensity to jump to, well, it's because of sin. I've got to repent. So the question is, why do I want to repent? To be blessed or to have God? And what am I living for? What am I really living for? To have Jesus or to have his stuff? And when I realized that camp, I wanted people to come. His stuff was people coming to know Jesus, which is a cool thing. But if I'm living for people to come to know Jesus in place of me knowing God, the creator God of the universe... It's an idol in my heart, and it's something that I covet, and I'm going after his gifts and not him. Now, cool thing, chapter 8 comes along. And we aren't going to study chapter 8 in depth, but I just want to mention it. It's an R-rated chapter. If, if they would film chapter 8, it would have the, t- the movie today would be an R-rating, no doubt. But look at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you. 
and go up and attack Ai. Remember, take the whole army. You just took a few, take the whole army. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, this city, and his land. So here's the merciful part of God. Earlier in chapter 7, we saw God say, pull your big boy pants on. Joshua, quit crying. Here God is now speaking into the heart of Joshua and says, do not be afraid, Joshua. Do not be discouraged. You dealt honestly with sin. You're seeking me. I'm going to work in you. Be encouraged. And look at verse 2. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. And he goes on to give the details of how how he wants them to go about taking the city. So they head up into the city. They wipe the city out. 12,000 women and children and people gone, wiped out. But they're allowed to take the stuff. Why? Why does God change now? Why does God suddenly say, in Jericho you can't, now let's come to Ai and you can have the stuff. little side note too, just, just the R-ratedness of this chapter. They take the king out. This is, they take the king out and hang him from a tree. Gruesome torture. And then they take him down and lay him in the city gate and again, heap rocks on top of him. But why does God say you can have this stuff? You know, it echoes in my mind is Matthew chapter 6. If you want to look at it this week. Some of you know it by heart. Seek first the what? Kingdom of God and all his righteousness. And what's it say then? All these things will be added unto you. It's the same heart of Joshua chapter 7. Same exact thing. See, what God's saying now is, you know what, Joshua, you got it. Way to go. Nation of Israel, you're a group of people. You're clinging together. You get it. You're seeking me. I want you to seek me, seek my presence, know me, draw into my presence, enjoy me, find your satisfaction in me. And when you seek me, love me all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, now that your heart's right, I'll bless you. I'll give you the stuff. So he's saying, I know you're a people seeking me, not my gifts. I know you're people eager to represent me to the world, not just chasing after the stuff of the world. See, it takes a people to represent God. It takes a people. But it takes a people that are set apart to him. If we're going to do this courageous thing. If we're going to be courageous people, it takes us, not me. It takes us, but it takes us set apart to him saying, I love you, God, with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I love you so much. You are what I want. I want to know you, love you, draw into your presence, see you, understand what you've worked in, in the life of humanity through the person of Jesus. I want you, not your gifts. It takes a people set apart to God. Well-known verse in Hebrews, I think, captures this so well. This book of Joshua is a, is a wartime story. And I love the reality that we are living in war times. Spiritually, we are fighting a battle. And if you don't recognize that, it's probably because you haven't engaged it. When we step up and say, I am going to live for Jesus, it's a battle. It is a full-blown war until we see that day when, then, when sin and, and the dark forces of Satan are officially taken out and we're in heaven. But here's what the writer of Hebrews says. And let us consider 
how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. I think some of the reason we disappear from church and some of the reason people begin to wander off and people begin to not put priority on drawing into your small group of friends in the local church and saying we need each other is because we're not engaged in this thing called war. And when we are, we understand when I'm engaged, I know how much I need you because we're a team. When I'm out there getting kicked around and slapped and beat up and trying to fight and live holy and live right and see God, and it is hard. And when I'm engaged there, I begin to understand all the more how important it is to come together to speak encouragement to one another, to say, way to go, we can do this. Way to go. You know what? You've got gifts that I don't. I need your gifts and speak into my heart and, and I speak into yours and we, we, we encourage and say, you know what? I saw you do this. Let me encourage you. That was so cool. That's so awesome to see that growth that's, and encourage one another and do it all the more as we get closer to that day. We are a body charged to do good deeds and it takes all hands on deck. My favorite prophecy in the Bible, comes in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I am going to build my church. Not your church, Adam. Peter, not your church. I'm going to build my church, Jesus' church. Church is a word for people. I am going to build my people. That's what he's saying. Not my brick and mortar, my people. And then he says this, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, hell's a dark, hot place, is how we see it in the Bible. So here's how I picture this. I want to end, go to prayer with this image. It's like me standing, picking up my water pistol, my super soaker. And it's like me saying, I am going to storm the gates of hell with my super soaker. I'm not going to put a lot out. I'm not going to bring many out of hell. Maybe one or two. And I'm going to come out damaged and hurt and beaten up. But when we as a group link arms together, each of us picking up our super soakers, the church collective taking holiness seriously to say we are holy people because we want to draw into the presence of God. We want him, not his gifts. Linking arms, each of us with our super soaker, we begin to chase hell then, the gates of hell, with a fire hose of water. And when the collective church as a whole all over this globe begins to link arms through the name of Jesus and say, we are going to do this. Jesus says, my church will prevail against the gates of hell. We will blow darkness out of the water. That's the heart I have for this church. Is that we understand that we are a people on mission together. And we link arms connected to one another saying, we need, I need you, you need me. Let's go do this thing. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I think of Joshua chapter 7 and all the stuff that's there. And God, yes, sin is there and sin is dealt with with a vengeance. So God, may we take sin seriously. But God, would you, God, I repent. I just talk to you very honestly and say, you know what, so often. Why I'm really repenting of sin is because I want your stuff. 
I want ministry to go good. I want the church to grow. I want my family to be nice. I want, I want to have more kids. I want, to, I want my wife to be happy. I want my house. I want my job. I want, God, so often I'm praying and repenting because I want from you and not because I'm coming to you, to have you, to enjoy you, to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, we're a people that can't do that without Jesus. And so thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he's moved in our direction and help us to love you through him radically. Help us not to be people that every time things go wrong, we start turning over every rock, thinking what must be because I'm not living right. That might be part of it. But God, help us to be people that chase after you. Help us to be people that recognize the need for one another, for the body If we're going to knock those gates of hell back, God, the promise that you give in Matthew 16, it's going to take the church and the word that's used is people linking arms, going at this thing with passion and vengeance. God, thank you so much for Jesus. And God, just as we end here with this, with this song, God, this anthem of praise and of declaration, God, would, would we feel our hearts come alive? Would we feel energy? Would we feel the, the desire and the, the passion to link arms with each other and go do the courageous things that you've called us to do as a body, not just an individual? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.